Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. This week, we're featuring two incredible authors, Sam Wasson, observer of Hollywood and its artists, and the Pulitzer Prize-winning New Yorker writer, Lawrence Wright. Here's my interview with Sam Wasson from 2021. My guest today is author Sam Wasson. Whether he's writing about directors such as Blake Edwards, Paul Mazursky, or the history of improv, a consistent theme running through Wasson's books is the perseverance and talent required to make art in Hollywood. His latest book, The Big Goodbye, is about the seminal film Chinatown. How much are you worth? I have no idea. How much do you want? I just want to know what you're worth. Over 10 million? Oh, my, yes. Why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. This is the love theme from Chinatown by the film's composer, Jerry Goldsmith. In The Big Goodbye, Wasson chronicles the friendships of the four men at the heart of the 1974 classic. Producer Robert Evans, screenwriter Robert Town, director Roman Polanski, and the movie star Jack Nicholson. And what was at stake for each one in making this definitive film? Sam Wasson grew up in Los Angeles and fell in love with the movies early on. I was a movie lover. It was actually Bullets Over Broadway. I went nuts. I thought... Oh, film is not just dialogue and performance. It's visual component. It's a complete sensual experience. That Bullets was so beautiful and so funny, it knocked me out when I saw it. That was the end. It's the ultimate art form, combining all the other art forms. You finished film school. Yeah, USC. First, I went significantly. I went to Wesleyan for film school in Connecticut and studied with Janine Basinger, who's the Hollywood historian on the planet knows more about Hollywood than anyone ever has, I think, ever, ever will have. And it's just obvious when you talk to her. And she really teaches auteur theory of Hollywood. So I got a deep four-year-long survey of the greatest. And there was no deconstruction. There's no, you know, film theory. It's film as film. And that was my film education. And then I went to USC, which was kind of a bust. For what? For film, production. Right. I directed one film uh, myself, and I, I just, I wouldn't say hated, but I didn't care for it at all. You know, being responsible for cajoling the work out of, especially actors. It's a lot of managing, isn't it? I mean, it's, 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 it's a much managing as art, whereas if you're acting or if you're starring or if you're writing, there's very little bullshit that you have to deal with. It's purer, I think. Well, when I was acting and then I directed a film, I remember that when you're, when you make films and you're starring in films, you know, years ago for me, 
you could be in your trailer and they would knock on the door and say, well, the producer would like to talk to you. Or the head of the studio was here visiting. He'd like to talk to you. And I'd say, tell him I'm asleep. And, <laughs> just, and you could hide in the trailer. As opposed to when you're directing, you can't do that. You can't you hide can't in the trailer. Hide. No, you have to. They, they come to work and they're like, "Let's cut. Let's talk about how you're over over schedule here." That's an amazing thing about directing is that you're you're really in reality. You're interfacing with reality all the time, and in other art forms, you don't. You can be in your imagination, but when you're making a movie, there's so much shit that you have to do. You're making a building from scratch. So you finished. You did four years at Wesleyan. Yeah, and then you wanted more film school. And then I, and everyone was said, oh, you want to make movies. You got to go to film school. You got to go to USC. And so I thought, oh, yeah, USC, of course. That's where, you know, you go to Juilliard if you want to do Lincoln Center. You go to USC if you want to do, you know, man's Chinese. So Wesleyan was more film theory and USC was about film production. Yeah, it was film study. I mean, it was film. It was watching movies and talking right. about filmmaking. Right. But at what point do you stop and say to yourself, I don't think I'm going to make movies? Well, I'm not totally convinced that I'm not going to, oh. but at that moment, it was a combination of two things. I looked around and I saw that my fellow classmates were completely invested in the Hobbit thing. And I felt instantly lonely and realized that I was experiencing a microcosm of what it was going to look like out in the real working world. And I thought, you know, maybe the Hollywood that I grew up in is no longer the Hollywood that is, or the Hollywood that I grew up outside of. Mm -hmm. And I was right. And then the book thing just happened. How? It was actually Janine Basinger at Wesleyan who said, why don't you write a book? I never thought of it. And I picked Blake because I wanted to pick who I thought was the greatest writer-director of comedy alive who had not been celebrated. Now, Blake, my ex-wife, Kim Basinger, uh, did uh, Man Who Loved Women with Blake. And that's when I first met Julie. And, you know, you're so right. I mean, he's so underappreciated. I think Victor Victoria yeah. is one of the 10 funniest movies I've ever seen in my life, ever. I love Victor Victoria. I love 10. I love a movie he made that a lot of people probably don't know about called What Did You Do in the War, Daddy? Uh -huh. With Dick Sean. Dick Sean. Dick Sean. <laughs> and Dick Sean, I'll just say this. Dick Sean is a drag scene in the movie. I mean, if I don't know what else you need. But, <laughs> but, but Blake, Blake, I, I always thought that Blake was, uh, people uh, look at slapstick somehow with the exception of Chaplin, who is revered as poetic because he is. Everyone else looks at slapstick as this low form. You know, slapstick is dumb. It's for children. Right. It's childish. And yes. so I think Blake got a bum rap. Uh, because of that. And I wanted to elevate him and say, this is sophisticated. Someone can fall off a fucking chair and still be Noel Coward. And that's what Victor Victoria is. Okay, so then you do, after Blake, uh, your next book. Fifth Avenue, 5 a.m. Yeah, so Fifth Avenue, 5 a.m. is your next book. Then Mazursky, I think, is after yeah. that. Why Mazursky? What did he do to you that made you want to write a whole Because to, to write a book, as you know, you're spending a lot of time of your life with that person. Yeah. Uh, Mazursky was just just love for the work, enthusiasm for the man who I'd met a couple of times. And actually, it ties to Blake. As much as I loved the work, Blake left me with such a scar in my heart. Why? Why? He personally was so sadistic. To you? Yeah. He sadistic was. to me. And he was that way to you as his, as his uh, Boswell here? It was astonishing. I was young. I don't know. You could probably tell me how old I was. I don't remember. I was young. And he would cancel on me, and I'd be in the car on the way over, and he would cancel on me, with not giving any reason. And then he would call me up, and he would say, you know, get in the car, come on over. And I would get in the car, and he would cancel on me. It was a real dance of death. And I finally got in there a couple of times, but... um it was open hostility. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> it was like nothing. Yeah. It was a real abusive, codependent relationship. So Mazursky is platformed off of Blake. How? Why? Because I, we're getting into the therapy portion of the conversation, <laughs> but of course I blame myself for the way I was, you know, and I guess I wanted to make sure I knew how to do this and that it wasn't going wrong because of me. And so I wanted to be with someone that I was comfortable with and obviously idolized. And 
those two things dovetailed perfectly in Paul. And Mazursky was nothing like Blake, I take it. Oh, no. Mazursky's. You know, it turns out people are like their movies. Blake Edwards' movies are sadistic, and we love them for it. And Paul's movies are loving and warm, and we love him for it. But because comedy is finally about rage, to find a nurturing director of comedy, and Nichols wouldn't be, would qualify in this case, is a rare thing. And so I'm interested in funny people, and funny people and good people don't always go together. So to find in Mazursky funny and mensch to the core was a beautiful thing and is what, what his movies are about. Well, interesting you mentioned Nichols because Nichols is a very good example. A lot of these big directors I worked with and had very small parts, you know, Stone, Marty, Woody, Nichols. I mean, I didn't have leading roles in these films. And when I worked and I did the movie Working Girl, one of the first films I did, and I worked with Mike, you could tell that Mike was someone who had come through a gauntlet. He'd worked his way. And I don't, I don't mean this as a criticism. He had come through a gauntlet where in the way that you move through the film business and you have, and Polanski reminds me of this as well in your mm. book, Mike was someone who had in the way that you, you'll take the good ideas wherever they come from. You'll take the good advice wherever it comes from. And you're going through the jungle, if you will, and eventually you realize that the person you can rely on, the person has that typically, not always maybe, but who typically has the best ideas is yourself. And you grow to rely on yourself, and you don't want anybody to talk you out of what you're keen on. That's improvising. That's because Mike is an improviser. I mean, right. does that fit? Like your, that's, well, that's your other book. That's your other, now, why did you write that book? Why did you write about improv? Well, two reasons. One, I do believe it is the great American art form. I right. do believe that. And the other reason, uh, I wanted to meet Elaine. I wanted to know Elaine. I wanted to celebrate Elaine because she created this. She's a national treasure. You're referring to Elaine May. Yes. She is, as you know, you know, tough to get a hold of. I wanted to do it. I didn't do it. And my heart is still not whole. There's still a dark Elaine part in the heart. It belongs to her. Describe for me the relationship between, you spend a good amount of time in the book and the relationship between town and Polanski. So the film of Chinatown, the shooting script, the scenes that were shot, and I'm assuming that eventually a script is compiled and is and, and it, it is is bound, if you will. That is the shooting script. Is that more Polanski than Town? Well, Town obviously generated it, and then Polanski for years he was generating it. And Town is a very slow writer and a very expansive writer. I, I mean, he writes big and then struggles to cut down to structure. So when Polanski comes in, in the last two or so weeks or a month or whatever it was, Polanski really structures it. So I guess the answer is yes. So the structure is Roman, no question about it. But the material is town. Now, town, who had his writing partner, Edward Taylor. Yeah. And uh, Taylor was someone, describe that relationship. Taylor was someone who did a lot of work. Uncredited, I think nearly all of it uncredited. Was he ever credited? Did you mention that in the book? Did he get a credit anywhere? Not on a town movie. He got a credit, a writing credit on a movie called W.I. Warshawski, Kathleen Turner picture. Yes, 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 yes. Um, Edward Taylor got credited for that, um, but he never got a writing credit on a Robert Town movie. Um, Never wanted one. Why do you think that is when you have a guy, here's four men who are fairly... um, if not obsessed with success, they're obsessed with greatness, their legacy. I mean, you, yep. you could you could fine-tune all four men. What did they, they had something in common, but it was a little bit distinctive what Nicholson wanted, Evan, so forth. But for Taylor to be in the rooms with these people and writing these seminal films, why do you think he didn't want any credit? What was it about? Well, there's stated reasons and then there's unstated reasons. And the stated reasons were, and this is Taylor, either from his own writing or from or what he told to other people, were one, he didn't want to deal with the bullshit of show business. He just wanted to punch in, punch out, write the scenes, do the creative work, and not have to deal with the haggling of the negotiations and, and egos and despair and all that stuff that comes with having your name on something. There's a certain amount of freedom that you get to say, no one's going to know that I was here. So there was that. 
Then there was the long-term friendship that he had with town going all the way back to their years at Pomona when they were in college. Mm. So he felt a kind of loyalty to town, which manifested as subordinating himself to town's, you know, quite obvious need to be a star. And then there were all these speculative secret reasons about secrets that they might have had on each other. Uh, then there was, of course, Edward's alcoholism and town really being a support to Taylor, you know, because Taylor got paid for this. And Taylor in his heart really did believe, you know, these are town's movies, which they were insofar mm-hmm. as town generated them. And I'm just helping Robert with his movie. He convinced himself of that. Yeah. That it really was more town. And also there are people like that who what they convince and they have a certain kind of personality. I've known a couple myself where their attitude is better the crumbs off your table than nothing at all. That's it. That's it. So there's pat deep pathological stuff that we can't even get into, but that's the type that you're describing. But the one thing that you see in this movie is the death of that studio executive like Evans. You mentioned a piece of very well-known history, the advent of Jaws and what Jaws does to marketing and films and how the business all changes uh, in the wake of that. But you tell it so well. I mean, you tell it really Thank wonderfully. You. You, you make everybody really see the impact. This had. Once these guys knew there was big money in them, their hills, yep. everything changes. What was it about Evans that he wanted to have great films that made money and won awards? He loved it. He loved it. He loved show business. He loved movies. He loved people. He loved talent. It's actually that simple. I asked him this question. I said, Evans, is it as simple as you bet on talent? Do you have an easy job? And he said, you're goddamn right. That was, and, and, and it's true. I mean, if you have the courage, that's the question. Do you have the courage to say, yes, I believe you are talented, here's the check, then you're a great studio executive. Because even if the movie fails, even if it is a steaming piece of shit humiliation to everyone on the planet, at least you go to bed thinking, I picked a good guy. I picked the right people to do that. Right, right. That's a pride that what executive can now go to sleep saying that? You know, the Evanses, and you mentioned Zanuck and people like that who were running the studios back then, some of them weren't people who knew how to make movies, but they knew people who knew how to make movies, and they knew how to yes. bring them together and, and, yes. and seduce them into coming in to join them on this venture. Yes. I mean, Goldman's maxim turns out to be right. I believe nobody does know anything. Right. I believe nobody knows anything. Those people who end up being the most successful are the people who have the who are the strongest to adhere to their great taste. Mm-hmm. And those guys, Zanuck, all those great guys, had exactly that. Now, Evans, of course, you, you, you do a wonderful job in the book. This is a prism through which you learn a lot about the movie business and the history of the movie business. It's a great, great, great book. And you also learn what a seminal year this is in 1974. So many great movies made. And Evans is someone who, you know, is that white hot period in the 70s. The studios are making Paint Your Wagon and Finian's mm-hmm. Rainbow mm-hmm. and all that stuff is tanking. And then along comes, and, and Robert Osborne said this to me when we co-hosted TCM together. He said, you know, I just hate Easy Rider because Easy Rider is the movie that comes along and just changes everything. Yeah. The movies yeah. become so real and so ugly and so uh-huh. and, and, and so nasty. And so and they're, like, they're like documentaries. Nicholson becomes a star, if you will, on the back of that movie in 69. Then we get into the 70s, and what happens? Well, you know, just like Hollywood being Hollywood, Easy Rider is a hit, so then they all fall over themselves trying to get the next one. Now, unlike today, where they fall over themselves trying to get the next one, back then, making a movie was relatively inexpensive enough Mm -hmm. that they could understand the next one being, well, let's try another little movie based on a, you know, based on a couple of guys. You know, the modesty of the Easy Rider project could be replicated. And that is a recipe for creativity. And so that's what they did after that. Absolutely cynical undertaking insofar as Hollywood is doing what it's always done. But because the economics of the system 
are conducive to creativity and the people calling the shots are genuinely interested in art, it can flower. Polanski's wife, he makes the movie Rosemary's Baby, which I can't say enough about that movie. And the more I watch that movie, that's one of the ones I've downloaded on my computer because of that remarkable balance he has. You have Ruth Gordon in this, like right up to the, her toes are right on the line of camp in that movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And yet there's Sidney Blackmer playing her husband, yep. who's as velvety. And the cast is Alicia Cook. You have the creepy and the sour and the sweet and the weird and the pleasant yeah. and the, everything yeah. in, in harmony. And the same is true for this movie. The same is true. Polanski is a master of casting. Master. I'm so glad you brought Definitely down to, I mean, who is Burt Young in Chinatown. Talk about juicy. I mean, there's so it's an embarrassment of riches that we never get. The movie is so fertile in talent that we never get down to the Burt Young of it all. <laughs> we obscure Burt Young. Yeah, we do obscure Burt Young. Diane Ladd. How about that? Dead on the floor. Oh, and just a perfect, perfect portrait of a nervous actress all the way through performing down to the very end when he pulls out the SAG card. And that is an L, that is also inside, that's a little gift to an Angelino to see that, oh yes, she was an actress. Of course she was. And you play it back in your mind and, and the whole psychology of the actress just kind of harmonizes with what you've seen. Fucking Polanski casting that movie. I mean, how do you, you can't, t how do you teach the ability to cast? That has to be one of the things like, like you, you have it or you, you have don't. To have. It's a gift right? you have to have. You have to sense that that person can do, even if you have to push them, even if they have to dig down. You know, you know Gary Oldman became a star doing Sid and Nancy. Oh. Gary Oldman became a star doing Sid and Nancy and won an Oscar playing Churchill. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about that journey as an actor in terms of the disposition of the character. Now, Polanski, his wife is killed. He, he does Rosemary's Baby. It's, it's released in 68. His wife is killed in 69. He comes and does this movie, I guess, in 73. It's released in 74, correct? Yeah. And what Polanski is showing up now to shoot Chinatown, which Polanski shows up now, he's changed how from the horrors of what happened to his wife. He's been devastated. He's been devastated, and he's he left town. And it should be said, not just because his wife and child and friends were murdered by them, not just because of the emotional residue of the grief, but because the town turned on him in a way. The town, in the panic around figuring out who the killer was, we didn't know who the killer was, mm -hmm. there was speculation that, well, maybe it's Polanski. Right, his right. movies are don't evil enough. I learned that from you. I learned that from your book. And it's a tribute to his friends, Dick Silbert, Jack, Warren Beatty, Evans, the people who were really his friends who stuck by him and supported him in that. I mean, the grief, to compound on top of the grief, the paranoia of the town closing in on you, I can't even make a word to come out of that. Well, they, well, they, well, they put him back together again, so to speak, his friends. They put him back together he's, he's, again. He's got, a, yeah. he's got a good bunch of friends. And that's kind of also what this book is about secretly for me, is a good bunch of friends, because that's what I dream of. That's what a good Hollywood should feel like. One thing that was just really assaulted me from the book was that idea that back then, and it never crossed my mind, it never occurred to me that Polanski was someone who people, he was a suspect in some people's minds. He was a suspect. And now the whole, now the whole town, the whole community lived in terror in the wake of the Lived in terror. And I should add, to compound, to make this even fucking worse, he didn't know who the killer was. So he's suspecting his friends. Mm. Maybe it yes. is Warren. Yes. Maybe it is Warren. He's, he's, you know? doing, he's, he's trying to get sample. D what was he trying to get? Like yes. blood samples off of steering yes. wheels and the carpeting yes. of cars and all this shit. Yes. That's an amazing part of the book. I mean, it's enough for an opera r right there. I mean, people say it's a Greek tragedy. I mean, Roman Polanski, that's to, to say nothing of what we all know is coming, but just that incident right there, unimaginable. Author Sam Wasson. If you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend and be sure to subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
When we come back, Wasson talks about the reception of the film's shocking ending and its remarkable score. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Because Chinatown was Jack Nicholson's first real turn as a leading man, he paid attention to every last detail, down to his wardrobe, to inhabit Jake Giddies. I mean, it was deep in him, too, because town wrote it for him. Town observed Nicholson. They were in um, Jeff Corey's acting class, right? And 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 improvised. I- improvisation was heavy in that class, and so and Jack is a great improviser. So Town really became a master of Jack, whatever that means, and so learned learned how to just hit it right to him. Sometimes I think the guy that can nail Chinatown and especially that ending and that and that last line. The guy that can nail that ending, you write with great detail and great insight into the shooting of that final scene and the car driving off in that long shot and the actor that pulls the gun and shoots her, you know, the the whole kind of existential ennui of the whole thing at the end. Uh forget about it, Jake, it's Chinatown. I thought to myself, that's Polanski in the wake of his wife being butchered that way. Yes. Like his mother is killed. His father says to him, you have, you have it in there. Move it. Move it. The prompt from the father, but you just keep moving. Just keep moving. And Polanski was certainly primed to nail it because of all the horrors he'd been through. And it's hard to imagine a more horrific ending to a major Hollywood movie. It's hard to imagine. And when the film was screened for the executives, what was their, you, you write about this, what was their response to the film? You know, you, you tried your best, Evans, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Sue, Sue Mangers was like, what are you, what were you, honey, what were you thinking? I can't do Sue. You could do it. You know, right. uh, they're filing out in the director's guild. Um, was it Freddie Fields who had a sort of shit-eating grin on his, Freddie, Freddie and Evans were never simpatico. Right, right, right. But then it got good reviews. Yeah. Yeah, then it did well. It did well yeah. and, and won a lot of awards. Yeah. Jack didn't win. Jack didn't win. Jack didn't win. Hey, Jack didn't Who won win. that year? Oh, 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 Art Carney. Art from From Mazursky. From Mazursky. Even Mazursky knew Mazursky when I talked to him. Mazursky snatches Jack's yeah. Oscar and hands it. Not so fast, Jack. Yeah. And hands it to Art Carney. Yeah. Yeah. I think even Paul was a little embarrassed of that. Was it going in style? No, it was Harry, Harry and Tonto. Tonto. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let's see. Chinatown, Harry uh-huh. and Tonto. Hmm, let's see. 
Wow. Okay. No, I love that. Sounds like an SCTV sketch from the makers of Chinatown. From the makers of Chinatown. (laughs) Here comes a story of a man and his cat. You know, one of the things that uh, I love the part of the story because I'm obsessed with musical score. Describe how there was the path with the score for Chinatown. One composer who then, what happens? His name was Philip Lambro, and um, he wrote. I don't have the language to even describe what music. I mean, you can actually find the score on YouTube. And it was an atonal, edgy, expressionistic, weird, you know, not melodic, not what you think of as Hollywood, certainly not what you think of as 40s glamour Hollywood. And it didn't work. And this was like in the final moments before, you know, scoring comes in at the very end. And what happened was uh, Evans called Goldsmith and said, you got to save my life. And and Goldsmith said, all right. And 10 days later, and, and 10 days sounds like a legend, you know, sounds like fable fiction stuff. I got 10 days confirmed all over the place. It really was 10 days. I mean, if it wasn't 10, it was 11 days. You know, he turned around a masterpiece in no time. This is another reason why Evans is Evans. Only people like Evans can pick up the phone and get somebody like Goldsmith to write a score for one of the greatest movies in the world in 10 yeah. to 11 days or whatever the fuck it is. And it also tells you that Evans was beloved on a personal level. Yes. You know? He could make those calls. And you make those calls and someone says yes and, t- and turns it around and Evans supervised the score. You know, music was so important to Evans. <sighs> So important to Evans, even though he fucked up on on Godfather by not, you know, Nino Rota pushing back on. It's okay. But Evans loves music because he's finally in his heart, just a romantic and a softy. And also music is a major part of post-production. And that's where Evans can come in and and get his hands in there. Sometimes he gets his hands a little too much in there as, <laughs> as, as Coppola knows and suffered by. But that's the, the shadow side of Evans. But music allows him to do, allowed him to do that. Author Sam Wasson. And now from our archives, my interview with Lawrence Wright from 2015. My guest today, author Lawrence Wright, thinks a lot about religion. He wants to know why people choose one faith over another, especially when what they choose seems, quote, absurd or dangerous to an outsider. This question has led Wright to investigate some of the world's most complicated and secretive organizations, from the People's Temple in Jonestown to the Church of Scientology. His book on Al-Qaeda won the Pulitzer Prize in 2007. Lawrence Wright has a unique first-hand experience as to the power of belief. I grew up in Dallas in the Methodist Church, and it was despite the fact that Methodism doesn't have a reputation as being kind of a you know, hellfire and brimstone, the first of the churches that we went to in Dallas really was that. And then we graduated to the Methodist Church downtown. My dad taught Sunday school for many, many years. You know, Dallas back at that time was the most pious city in America. We had the largest Methodist, Baptist, I think the largest Episcopal church, and one of the largest Catholic churches in the entire country. And uh, at the same time, we had the highest murder rate and the highest divorce rate, you know, all the things that go along with uh, excessive Enforced. piety. Enforced <laughs> piety. <laughs> yeah, so it was, and I was very pious as a um, teenager. I was in a group called Young Life. and um, Genuinely, or you were responding to pressure? No, I was, I was well, there were was both of those things. It was, you know, I, I had moved around a lot. As, my dad was a banker, and we moved uh, quite a lot, and it was hard for me to establish roots. So when I got to Dallas and this, you know, young life came along, it was a social club for me, but also it was the first time I understood the, um, you can bend yourself into the shape of the organization the way it wants you to be. And also, the more pious you are, sort of the higher you climb, the more important you. So I got to be a part of it. The more you put it on. Yeah. Well, you say those things, and it's... And you want to believe them. I, I was not consciously trying to deceive anyone. At the same time, you know what to say. You're, you're heartfelt and you're yeah. genuine, but at the same time, you realize that there's right. a, there's an approval system here. Yeah, and I think that that experience um, 
was um, formative in some ways for me to be so interested in religious matters and why, you know, I, I people are always, you know, reporters, especially fascinated by politics. But you can have strong political views and it doesn't affect your life at all. Mm-hmm. But if you have strong religious views, they probably dictate much of your behavior. It's puzzling to me why uh, with most journalists, it's just embarrassing to ask about what people believe because it's not supposed to matter. Did you leave the area to go to college? Did you? Yeah, I went to Tulane in New Orleans, which was a city least like Dallas that I could find. And you could uh, buy beer in Woolworths, and you could uh, drink at eighteen, and uh, there were you know a lot of things. Of, Not very uh, pious there. In, well, in and French also, by that time, I kind of shed that. But uh, I was actively looking for a way to live a more bohemian life. I felt very constricted in Dallas. Was writing something that was on your mind even at an early age? Yeah. Yeah, it Had was. you written in college? I took a creative writing class. You know, I was not a distinct— No school paper. No, I used to like doing that stuff, though. And then um, after I graduated, um, you know, the Vietnam War was going on, and uh, I became a conscientious objector and spent two years of alternative service teaching in Cairo. And uh, that's where I, I became involved for the first time with the Arab world. And, and when the the boy from— Dallas becomes a conscientious objector. How did that go over back home? You know, I, my dad was a war hero, and I wanted to be like him. I was in ROTC. I expected, you know, to, to follow in his footsteps, but, you know, there was this parallel problem going on, which was the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. which was despicable. Different war. And we, it, was, it was a bad war. And, you know, for a person, a young man like me who wanted to serve his country— but did not want to kill people for the wrong reason or risk my life for something I didn't believe in. It it just was a terrible—my father and I had horrible, horrible fights about Vietnam. Did you have any brothers? No. No, I had two younger sisters. So you were it. You were the scion. Yeah. Did you ever make peace with them about that? Yeah. You know, I wrote a a memoir— uh, about growing up in Dallas during the Kennedy assassination and in America during the Vietnam era. I, in the process of doing that, I talked to my parents a lot, and, and I let them read the manuscript. And it was a very healing experience for all of us, I think. I first became familiar with you and your writing in the Olympia Washington story, um, the piece that was entitled Remembering Satan which you wrote as a book as well. These were excerpts yeah. from the book. There was a two-part lengthy excerpt in the uh, edition of The New Yorker. And I first became familiar with you. And I, I mean, I was just supposed you know, like knocked out by this piece. I thought, you know, how on earth is this possible? Had you written pieces like that? I mean, the Scientology piece, the book, and uh, Going Clear, which we're going to get to that, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, this piece, uh, there's uh, there's some fascinating people either putting themselves or putting other people through some living hell here. Mm-hmm. Was this the first such piece you wrote, the Olympia piece? No, I think I'd, I'd, I had written about, um, you know, a, a lot of different— I even wrote about Satanists and, you know, uh, people of all sorts of— I mean, if you're a reporter and you have a passport to write about anybody, uh, and I took full advantage of that. But the, that remembering Satan is kind of a— a uh, stereotypical type of article that I like to write about, which is, um, for one thing, it's, it's a discrete world. You know, in this case, it was, uh, you know, this world inside Olympia, Washington, that had been infected by these hysterical memories of s- satanic ritual abuse, uh, which never occurred. But a man was convicted of these crimes. He confessed to them because he remembered them. And there was, other than his... Uh, memory, there was no evidence of it. If I remember correctly, no one else was sentenced to prison? Only Paul went to prison. What's his relationship with his family now, or do you even know? It's very broken as far as... I I, I haven't talked to Paul in a couple of years, but, um, you know, he's married again. You know, he started another life. And... uh, But, uh, you know, it's an example of uh, how the mind can be so persuaded of, uh, you know, a false reality that... Uh, and, and Do you think that, everybody is capable of that? 
I don't, I don't, I, I don't know if I would say that. To whatever degree. Now, not well, capable of that, I, but creating a false reality. One of the things that has been uh, an education to me as a reporter when I'm out interviewing people that have been, for instance, in Al-Qaeda or, you know, people that have come out of, you know, I interviewed the children of Jim Jones and, you know, I talked to people who went into Scientology. They're not crazy people and they're not stupid and, you know, they're, they're often, you know, if there's a commonality, there's idealism, uh, you know, there's a, a longing to make, you know, change history, make something of yourself. And uh, that's, you know, maybe that's one of the most dangerous elements of our human nature is that we – it's the better parts of our nature that sometimes lead us into real dangerous areas. But with the better parts of the natures of Jones's children – well, you know, they were they were essentially captive to him. So, but and they survived. Thank God, uh, they were off playing uh, basketball in a tournament in Georgetown, Guyana. Um, so they weren't when the in killings jail, went when down. the killings went down. But the uh, it's always to me it has always uh, underscored the danger of these kinds of fanatical belief systems. I. Uh, there were these three boys, uh, two adopted. Uh, Stephen was a natural son, and he looked very much like his father, Jim Jones, uh, with the kind of Cherokee cheekbones, and he's a very tall and striking, handsome man. And um, then there was um, Jim Jones Jr., who was black. Um, and uh, Adopted. Adopted. And then the third adopted son was Tim, who is this big red-headed guy, Tim, these boys, when I talked to him, it, Waco was going on at that time, the Branch Davidian episode, and Tina Brown was the editor of The New Yorker, and she wanted me to go to Waco, and I said, there are more reporters in Waco than there are Branch Davidians. I just, but I was, I was convinced that this must, you know, I'd seen the children, some of the children that were sent out, I thought this must have happened before, and I found these three boys who had never then grown men, never told their story before. And I don't know why they were willing to talk to me, but Tim, when I got to him, uh, he, he demanded that we do it in a restaurant, in a public place, because he didn't want to cry. And he had never told his wife, his current wife, what had happened. And he wanted to say this story one time. Now, bear in mind, Tim Jones is a massive fellow. He can he can press a hundred pounds with either arm. You know, he has an immense physical presence. And we went to the restaurant, and within a few minutes, he was pounding the table and sobbing, because Tim is the one who had to go into the jungle and identify nine hundred people: his real parents, his adoptive parents, his wife at the time, his children. Everybody lying on the ground, and uh, it makes an impression. Did he ever confide to you or or even just discuss to you what he thought was going on there, what he thought Jonestown yeah, yeah, was? Yeah, they, they, they all knew that their dad was crazy and that this on was On behalf headed, of what? What was he doing there? You know, he was giving these suicide drills regularly. You know, they break out the but Kool-Aid. Before the suicide before drills, the what, was the pur- suicide. what was the purpose of Jonestown? Well, the, the stated purpose. Oh, well, the stated purpose was to, they were, Jones was intensely paranoid. He had the feeling that the government was persecuting him, which was not really true at all. But one night, the entire church disappeared. Mm-hmm. You know, they all went secretly to this little South American country with, a, you know, in the, in the middle of the jungle. They'd been preparing it. The boys A religious in. utopia they wanted. Yeah, and it was just a, you know, it was like a, you know, a, a, a little summer camp type of thing. They built Quonset huts and so on, and they were living near a river, and they built an airstrip. I remember reading on this thing online where they said that Jonestown was this training ground where they were breeding MK Ultra operatives who were capable of committing murder on behalf of the government, and then they'd have no memory of it. Well, you know, no, I'm not saying that that's true, but I remember reading that once. I was fascinated. When I by was that. writing about uh, remembering Satan, when I was doing the, you know, multiple personalities were supposed to be the product of satanic ritual abuse, and uh, there was a big rise in multiple personality disorder. And uh, one of the theories 
was that the multiples had been created by the CIA in order that one personality could become a spy and you know deliver messages that other personalities inside the same human being wouldn't know about. Lawrence Wright's New Yorker article, The Orphans of Jonestown, came out for the 15th anniversary of the 1978 massacre that killed over 900 people. Listen to more conversations with writers who take on complicated issues, like David Simon, who wrote the TV show The Wire, but started out as a beat reporter for The Baltimore Sun. I think I was very fair as a reporter. You know, some of poverty is about personal responsibility, and some of it is not. Some of it is systemic and, and, and a result of societal forces that are profound. Take a listen in our archives at heresthething.org. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX Anniversary Sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest Lawrence Wright prefers taking notes on index cards over using a computer. You can only imagine the number of cards Wright used for his book Going Clear, Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief. After it was published in 2013, documentary filmmaker Alex Gibney asked Wright if he'd consider an adaptation. We'd worked together before. You know, I, I had done uh, this book about al-Qaeda called The Looming Tower. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I had this is my little acting venture. I, uh, I didn't want to travel with it. You know, I just hate touring, you know, doing the book tour thing. You know, I had seen uh, Anna DeVere Smith do Fires in the Mirror at the Public Theater in 1992. And I, it was the first time I could see that journalism and theater could be married. And I fascinated by that. So I did a one-man show called My Trip to Al-Qaeda, and I did it off-Broadway for about six weeks and in a few other cities. And Alex saw me do it in Washington. We decided to make it into a documentary, which we did for HBO. We hit it off. Alex is 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 a... uh, his nickname from childhood is Tiger, and it's you know well-chosen name. And he's a very skillful storyteller. And it takes those qualities to take something as complicated and, about an organization as vindictive and litigious as the Church of Scientology. It takes somebody like Alex to put together a movie like he's just done. One of the things I thought when I saw the film, and 
I mean, all my friends and people who know me personally, uh, it wasn't lost on my friends. Within about a week after that, I was back on a plane to London to go shoot a film with Tom Cruise. <laughs> right. And Tom is a friend of mine. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I consider him a friend in the business sense, but we don't get to see each other that often, but he's always very kind. And as people who know Tom know, he's a great person to be in the trenches of movie making with. He's very hardworking and very, very um, passionate about the work. Uh, but when I saw the film, one thing I didn't get, and maybe it's there, maybe it was in the book, and maybe it's in the film, but I, it was, I, I mean, I watched this film with intense scrutiny. There wasn't any sense to me of... What are the people who are in Scientology and remain in Scientology and who are dedicated to this, what do they perceive they're getting out of it? Because yeah. I have some opinions about that, what yeah. people have told me. Well, What does you know, it do for them? And why are they there? Especially when people go into Scientology, they don't, you know, they don't go into it because it's a cult. They go into it oftentimes because they're looking for something. Such and, as? Well, you know, sometimes they're spiritual seekers or they're, you know, you might be uh, one of those people that goes down on the subway and someone says, well, would you like to take our personality test, you know, and um, sure, Oxford capacity analysis, it sounds like, you know, might be, and, you know, well, we see that you have a little trouble uh, communicating with people. Well, that's true. Well, we, you know, we can they help know what you. To say. We can help you with that. Or in the case of Paul Haggis, um, you know, he had a, a girlfriend that he was having trouble with. And say, we, we have a course that can help you in your relationships. Yeah. You're and, in pain. And the truth is, oftentimes, they can help. It's like going into therapy. People do benefit from it. So this initial exposure to Scientology is often very positive to people. What about the people like Travolta, people who seem to have the world on a silver platter and everything is going their way? Well, that wasn't true when he got in. He he was a you know troubled young man uh, who was in his first movie in Mexico. He confided to a, an actress who was on the set, you know, he's having these difficulties. And... Um, she was a Scientologist, and she gave him some auditing, which is what Scientology calls as therapy, and gave him a copy of Dianetics and so on. He had an experience which happens to a lot of Scientologists when they're being audited. He went exterior. In other words, he had an out-of-body experience. He had the sense that he had left his corporal being and could look around the room and you know see things behind him and so on. At the time, he was taking a course when he tried out for this welcome back cotter. Mm -hmm. The teacher had everybody in the class turn their direction. I think it was CBS Studios, you know, but telepathically send the message to the executives that uh, that John Travolta is right for the role, and he got the part. <laughs> and so he always credited Scientology with putting yeah. him in the big time, as he said. Yeah. So, you know, in that sense, he really did feel that it had changed his life. But it's one thing to get into it, and it's another thing to get out of it. If you are a star, like Travolta was at one time the biggest star in the world. The biggest. And uh, you have put your name down again and again and again as a Scientologist. You're identified with it. And they have tapes of you yes, discussing you, your darkest moments. Right. Like if you and I were sitting in a Scientology auditing session right now, and you're my auditor, and you know, and I'm holding the cans which are attached to the e-meter, and you're probing uh, and asking me very personal questions about um, my life and, and things that I would not want to disclose to anyone else except in this very confidential, confessional atmosphere. Excruciatingly yeah. so. Material that is actually secretly recorded, sometimes videoed. And then it becomes apparent to you that if you decide to leave, um, the church may use some of that against you. And I talked heard to, that. I talked to a guy whose assignment was to go through all those old auditing sessions on John Travolta and find stuff they could use against him because they were worried that he was going to— He was going to go over the wall. Yeah, right. In the piece, in the film, the one thing I found that was um, disturbing was that there are celebrities and wealthy uh, public figures who uh, tithe a certain amount of their money, millions of dollars, to this organization. A second tier, if you will, and this is my description, the second tier, if you will, are, you know, 
middle Americans, middle right. income, who often go into debt, yeah. uh, often uh, go into dangerous amounts of debt and unwise amounts of debt in order to pay for these ordinary courses yeah. and so forth and to give money to the church. And then there's people who are poor, who have nothing, who wind up trading in-kind services. They become the kind clergy. of, a, you know, they become like a labor force yeah, for them. Right. And, they, and they, they get 40 cents an hour, according mm-hmm. to the film. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and they're doing a lot of um, work that benefits other people. Yeah. In the film, they're saying that these people are maintaining the hangar of Cruz's airplanes. Well, not only maintained it, what they did was uh, refurbish it. They 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 built all the furniture, they painted it, they you know they essentially took an empty hangar and made it into an office and a place for his planes and all these elaborate. Uh, have you ever been in his uh, hangar no. in Burbank? Well, he's got uh, you know these you know big decals and stuff like that, and, you know banners hanging down. It's it's a pretty swank uh, environment and they, they handcrafted a limousine for him and oversaw the reconstruction of his tour bus and they you know refurbished his house and these are people who are paid $50 a week and many of them joined as children so you know they're impoverished and they they're, they have no place to go they have you know and if or if they do, they don't know it. They, you know, then, you know, of course, maybe it may be the case that you know, their families and all are in the church, and if they left, uh, none of those people would ever speak to them again. Do you think the people who are the beneficiaries of this kind of this stuff, do they know what's happening? Yes, they don't I think there's no question that, that Tom Cruise knows what's going on inside the Sea Org. And I hold Tom to account. Uh, I single him out in particular and because uh, there are only— two ways that the abuses that we chronicle in the movie and in my book, there are only two ways that they can be addressed. And one is that the IRS decides, well, maybe we should re-examine that tax exemption that we were bludgeoned into giving them right. in 1993. Now, now, explain for people who don't, because this is a fascinating part of the film. It was during the time that uh, um, Hubbard was alive, or was the settlement reached after Hubbard died? It was after he died. And, and apparently he had a brigade and, and, and had been raising a lot of money, and he had a, and he had a lot of cash at his disposal and was just— shelling the IRS and litigation to maintain their status. Yeah. And finally, the IRS just caved and said, well, okay. The, 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 here's the situation that, that, Describe uh, what that happened. David Miscavige found himself in after Hubbard died. Uh, he wrestled control of this organization. And Hubbard had decided not to pay the taxes. And so by 1993, the Church of Scientology was a billion dollars in arrears, and it didn't have a billion dollars. And so this was an existential moment for the church. They had to get a tax exemption. And moreover, the IRS hated them because, you know, in the 80s, Hubbard had infiltrated uh, all these, uh, you know, the Justice Department, the IRS, the uh, you know, Food and Drug Administration, they had all these Scientology spies inside the government until the FBI broke it open in what was called Operation Snow White, and 12 people went to prison, including Hubbard's wife. So the IRS, among other government agencies, did not look kindly on the Church of Scientology. So how do you just imagine how you would go about getting a, a tax exemption from the IRS? Well, the Scientology way was to launch 2,400 lawsuits against the IRS and individual agents to hire private investigators, to follow agents around, to go to conventions where they might be drinking too much or fooling yeah. around. I don't have a billion dollars to pay the taxes, but I've got $50 million to lob some grenades at you. Yes, yeah, and so— and they, they, they essentially— Big gamble he took. They, uh, they won. And they won in Why such a— Why do you think a, they won? My personal feeling is this twofold. One is I think that the IRS just did cave because you know, it was a it. deal. The, the deal on the table was we'll give you the exemption and, and all those lawsuits will go away. And they did. And so— uh, Did they say we'll, we'll, we'll give you the exemption and take away those losses, but you have to pay us some amount of this money? And $12 million. Dollars. And that's all, that's this, all. the IRS that's required? All. And uh, moreover, it was such an overwhelming exemption. The church has manifold different entities, you know, uh, but even Hubbard's novels— are considered to be scripture and the tax exempt, the and in uh, a church now has the authority to determine which parts of itself should be tax exempt. Who was it in the film? If I, if I remember correctly, there's someone I think 
is an individual you cite who says to Hubbard early in his career, the only way you're going to get rich is if you start a religion. Oh, there were about 10 people he said that to. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that Hubbard really, I think he really did believe that. But let me get back to that, that question of, you know, just to, to touch back on Tom Cruise before we finish that. If the, if the IRS reexamined after the licking it took uh, from, from Scientology, if it decided to go back and reexamine that, that might force change inside the church. But I haven't seen any evidence that the IRS has the appetite to do this. All who's, those, the, who's the senator on the West Coast? Senator the, Ron Wyden is, 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 is looking into this. And so, you know, that's a possible. But the other way that change and reform could come in Scientology is that some of the celebrity megaphones turn around in the other direction and demand change. And nobody has benefited more from Scientology than Tom Cruise. Nobody is more identified in the public with the Church of Scientology than Tom Cruise. Nobody has brought, lured more people into the church than Tom Cruise. If you ask people, name one member of the sure. Church of Scientology, that's the He's one the member. Yeah. And, uh, and moreover, it's a powerful... I mean, if you look at... You know, he was the number one box office star. So you had Travolta, then uh, then Tom Cruise, and you know, and also Will Smith, who started a, a Scientology school. Although he says he's not a Scientologist, he was one of the top. He was number one. So you have one, two, three, the most powerful actors in Among the, the most world. Powerful, yeah. And if you're a young actor standing out in central casting waiting to get— Maybe it's not a bad idea if I stop by this center. Well, when you're standing in line, they'll be passing out brochures saying how to get an agent, how to get ahead in the business, come to the celebrity center. They make that direct link. Yes. And also, back in the old days, the acting— uh, schools like the Beverly Hills Playhouse right. uh, was run by Milton Katselis, yes, who was my teacher. He was apparently a wonderful teacher, yeah, and he was a Scientologist. And I think when uh, so many of these young people, they, uh, when they come, you know, it's, it is a young person's game when they get into it. So many of the people that went into Scientology, and this is true of anybody that tries to become an actor. Many people who try to become actors, they leave high school. They don't go to college. You have to go right away. Right. Nearly everyone we're talking about is uneducated. Yes, and so you're in your vulnerable, intellectually f- vulnerable, and and also you are risking everything. Your friends are going off. They're going to get law degrees and stuff like that, and you are out in you know Hollywood eating dog food, hoping to be a movie star. Right. There's a sense of inadequacy that you haven't filled in the great blanks that all your friends are doing, right. and well and so you. Along comes Scientology, which says, "Why bother?" None of that matters. Yeah, we can. You can supersede all that because yeah. well, we will give vault you, over yeah, all that. You you will you will learn the secrets of the universe and you'll acquire superhuman <laughs> powers. And that's and also just being noticed at all at that level is you know very powerful because you know I you've, I'm sure you've done this a million times, but I I remember once when I was out in L.A. and I was at Norman Lear's company and I I walked into a room uh, in the lobby and there were about 40 guys who were blonde and six foot two and extremely handsome and and I felt small and brown and uh, and you know but there was a sign saying no actors past this point and I was able to walk past this point and all those blue eyes well, turned in my direction people. and uh, and I thought one of those guys one of those guys is going to have his life changed and everybody else is going to go home and some of them become lawnmowers or something like that. But that's the risk to have the Church of Scientology come along, you know, maybe in that same room, and passing out brochures saying that we can help you. And, and by the way, on the brochure that might have a picture of Tom Cruise or somebody like that, it's a very powerful lure. If you also appreciate Lawrence Wright's work, There's a lot more to consume. Nine books, five plays, countless articles. The documentary film based on his book, Going Clear, Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief, is currently available on HBO On Demand and HBO Go. And if you're ever in Austin, you might be able to catch him playing keyboard in the blues collective Hoodoo. Wright said of playing in a band, quote, I decided a while ago that I would only do things that are really important 
or really fun. This is really fun. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.